Let's return to our study in 1 Timothy. I'd like to skip over tonight, not in the reading, but in the preaching, the last section of 1 Timothy 5, because it's about office bearers, and so I'd like to reserve that for next Sunday as new office bearers are installed. And so I thought we'd consider tonight the next part, 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2, about slaves called to respect their masters. I'd like to read the context, and so I'd like to read 1 Timothy 5, 17 through chapter 6, verse 5. 1 Timothy at chapter 5, verse 17, as we listen to the word of our great king. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborers worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness... He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Focus tonight on chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and let's ask our God for his help. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your word would instruct us tonight and guide us. We pray that it would bring light upon our daily work and tasks, how we may pray for each other, how we may encourage each other, and how we may live as a bright witness in this dark world. Would you write your law upon our hearts tonight, we pray, by the power of your spirit, and grant our hearts not to be stone, but fleshly tablets tablets to be inscribed. By the pen of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of Christ, tonight the word of God addresses slaves. It had 
earlier addressed elders and deacons. It had, at one point, as we saw, addressed those who have widows in their families they should care for. If you read on in chapter 6, it's going to address the rich and how they should behave. And as you look at all this, one thing becomes very clear. The gospel is for all of life. There's no people, there's no class, there's no circumstance where the gospel doesn't apply. The life of the Christian is not to be compartmentalized as if the only place for religion is for the believer in the privacy of his home or his own prayer closet or as if Christianity is just for for an hour or two on Sundays. But instead, we are the Lord's. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Whether we eat or drink, we are to do it for God's glory. All of life is claimed by Christ, by his gospel. And so we're to live out our union with Jesus Christ, wherever we are. We're always to rely on his power and be guided by his word and seek first his glory and his honor. And tonight, the Lord is instructing slaves, which none of us are. But I think the word has great application in many ways, but primarily to our relationship towards our employers. And so tonight, God calls those who labor under the authority of another to respect that other for the sake of the Lord's honor. And we could look at our text in three points here tonight, I think, and maybe we could label them in this way. First of all, looking at what's our highest priority, it's to be the glory of God and, and his truth in this world. And then looking at this loving partnership that that is to be honored between a believing master or employer and slave or employee. And then looking finally at the last words of verse 2, where we see this sanctifying process, that by the teaching and exhorting of the word, our lives are being changed. Well, first of all, the apostle calls slaves to honor their masters in verse 1. And the reason why, well, he attaches the most important reason of all. He says, let as many as are bondservants um, under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. So he lifts up the honor of God as the reason that slaves should honor their master. The way a slave responds to his master, the way he works or doesn't work, the way he speaks about his master, it all will reflect upon the one whose name he wears, the name of the Lord, and upon this gospel. Imagine Imagine a, uh, a master has a slave now who, who goes to church on Sundays, who's professing this new religion, Christianity, and now everything that slave does is a reflection upon this God and this religion that he claims. If slaves were to dishonor their master, they could do great damage to the name of God. They could cause many in the Roman world to think that this Christianity, this new religion is a lousy, lousy thing. God teaches us here he's most concerned about his glory. He's most concerned about his honor. But what the apostle is calling slaves to do here, of course, wasn't always easy, right? He says they're under the yoke. Well, yokes are for animals, right? And it's not pleasant to be treated like an animal as some slaves could be. And we're reminded as we begin to think about employee-employer relationships here that it's not always pleasant to be an employee, Some may feel like they're under the yoke, but if we're tempted automatically to 
to, to say, well, this doesn't apply to me because my boss is lousy. Even all the unbelievers at work think he's terrible. And so I don't have to do this thing. Nobody respects my boss. He's not respectable. We should remember that this was read, not first of all to employees who had it rough, but to slaves. And slaves are called to honor, to regard as worthy of honor their own masters who may not be so honorable. Now we wonder as we read these words why the Apostle Paul doesn't rather call for the abolishment of slavery. It's a natural reaction as Americans and knowing about American slavery and so forth. And we, we wonder why, why doesn't he call for the end of all slavery? Well, there's a number of things that could be said. First of all, we should remember that in chapter 1, verse 10, the Apostle Paul did condemn a number of sins. And he condemned there not only fornicators and sodomites, but kidnappers. And so the stealing of people's lives... The American slavery, which involved kidnapping, oftentimes, is condemned already in chapter 1. We can also realize that the Apostle Paul preached a number of principles and truth that, that would undermine slavery. Right? He proclaimed that men are created in the image of God. He insisted that believers are one in Christ Jesus. He commanded also masters to remember they have a master above and they must treat their slaves fairly. The apostle nowhere suggested that slavery was a creation ordinance like marriage or work or Sabbath, something that's, that God has made and built into the fabric of the universe. But instead, this is a evil. But others have pointed out that even though slavery was not a good thing, it was deeply embedded in the fabric of Roman society and the structures of that world. It's estimated that some 50 million slaves were found in the Roman Empire and that at some point nearly a third of the inhabitants of Rome were slaves. Some were born into slavery, some sold into slavery by their parents, some came as slaves by way of prisoners of war, some sold themselves into slavery due to debt, some came into slavery by way of kidnapping. And slavery in the Roman world was not the exact equivalent of the American slavery that we're familiar with. Slaves in Roman society sometimes had quite high positions. They could be even teachers and lawyers and doctors. Sometimes they had social mobility. They were at times able to purchase their own freedom. Sometimes they made money, they entered into partnerships with their owner. Sometimes slaves even owned slaves. And so it was a bit different. But as many have pointed out, and John Stott puts it this way, that because slavery is so embedded in Roman world, quote, to dismantle slavery all at once would have brought about the collapse of society any signs of a slave revolt were put down with ruthless brutality. And so, not only was the Apostle Paul unable just by issuing a word to abolish slavery in the world, but instead were slaves to rise up, it might actually be their great destruction in the Roman world. William Hendrickson writes that the Apostle's method, his way towards a solution, commends itself by reason of its evident wisdom. He says that the apostles' way of dealing with slavery, quote, avoids extremes 
which would have resulted in much harm both to the slave and to his master and would have reflected dishonor upon the cause of the Christian religion. So the apostle advocated neither outright revolt by the slaves nor the continuation of the status quo. Instead, he aimed to destroy the very essence of slavery with all its attendant evils. This method, though, for a while maintaining slavery in outward form was nevertheless the surest and most commendable way of working toward the final goal of complete abolition of this gruesome, inhuman, inhumane institution. And so many writers have pointed that out, that the Apostle Paul instead was preaching a gospel and teaching a truth that was undermining the very foundations of slavery. And indeed, as we see the gospel go forward, that's what happens isn't it, in the history of the world, that where nations or large majorities of people embrace Christianity and the gospel, slavery is overcome. But as we look at our text tonight and the word it's bringing, the Apostle Paul here is calling slaves to honor their masters for the Lord's sake. And as we think about this text tonight, as I said, obviously we're not slaves, but many are employees. Many more will grow up to be employees, and all of us have relationships with others in the church who are employees. This is the primary relationship, isn't it, in terms of the working world. This text needs to be applied. And we need to be convinced tonight that the most important thing is not our convenience or our comfort in the job, but the glory of our God. Our world keeps yelling about human rights, and God keeps telling us that, first of all, it's about divine rights. It's about the glory of our God. When we think about working for a pagan boss, whose name and whose honor are we most concerned about? If we, in our service, tear down the one who is over us with our words or in responding with anger or with passive-aggressive tactics of frustrating his plans or being lazy, then it reflects badly upon our God and upon his gospel. Many jobs may feel like slavery. People are in positions sometimes where they can't leave or they can't afford to leave. Sometimes jobs are dehumanizing or some supervisors are dehumanizing. But God says, I want you to think about whose name you wear and whose cause you represent. As long as I have you in that place, wherever it be, don't expose my precious name to the ridicule and contempt of the world by your bad behavior. Don't give a bad reputation to my cause upon the earth, the Christian gospel. But the world is watching you. Sometimes we say don't judge a book by its cover, but we know that we do judge books by their cover, right? And we we know that many people never open the Bible, but they judge the Bible based on the one person they knew in the life who read that Bible, who claimed to be a Christian. We live in a culture that's always talking about our personal freedoms and our liberties, and we may use them, and Paul used them at times, but our premier concern is not to be our comfort, not to be our convenience, not to be our liberties, 
But our aim is to be the glory of the Lord. And we're to be concerned about God's missionary purpose in this world. It's said that many of the Romans were suspicious when slaves picked up a new religion, wondering what it would mean, what it would do to them, how it would affect them. And you can imagine that as Christianity began to spread in the world and people began to hear about the way or about Christians or about this, what many thought was a new religion, that many were on guard and wondering and watching what this would do to their slaves. Well, in our culture, as many people become quite ignorant in this post-Christian, increasingly post-Christian culture, many people are watching us. Many people have no idea what the Bible says. The ignorance of Scripture is astounding today, but people are watching. How do we communicate to our boss? How do we speak in the break room about our boss? Do we complain? Do we tear down? Do we frustrate his purposes? Do we cut out in work? Do we try to get away with things? Do we steal time or supplies? What do we do? In writing to Titus, the Apostle Paul will say in that third pastoral epistle, Titus 2, verses 9 and 10, exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, Not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. What's said negatively in our text tonight, don't cause God's doctrine, his teaching, his gospel to be blasphemed, is put positively in Titus 2 verse 10, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That's what a woman does when she puts on makeup or jewelry, does her hair. She adorns herself. And, and God actually calls us to adorn his gospel, not because it's, a, it's an ugly thing that we need to make beautiful, because, but instead because we're to, we're to display that beauty before the world. What a marvelous thing to think that we as Christ's people may adorn his gospel before the world. Phil Reich, in his commentary, points to 2 Kings chapter 5, where there's that, really that remarkable incident of Naaman, the captain of the army of Syria, who is a valiant man, a wealthy man, but has leprosy. But you remember what's said there? It's said almost sort of in passing that there's a Jewish girl who got picked up on a raid as the Syrians would swoop down upon Israel, And they nabbed her, and she gets back and brought into Naaman's household, and she's serving in that household, and she says, it seems almost in passing, oh, that that, that my master was, was in Israel, where that prophet is, he would heal him of his leprosy. And the next thing you read there is that Naaman is going to the king and wanting to go to Israel to get healed. And you're left wondering to yourself, why, why does Naaman take so seriously a slave girl's word about some prophet who can heal him of leprosy? Well, you can only imagine she must have served in some way with dignity and honor such that he would trust her and respect her. She in some way adorned the gospel proclaimed in Israel. Reichen goes on in his commentary 
to say in the same way every believer is called to be a witness on the job and not a closet Christian. He writes, be sure that your employer and your fellow employees know that you are Christian so that your work will be evaluated in the context of your faith. When you are offered a promotion, consider the implications it will have for your family and ministry in the church. When you talk about your weekend, mention what happened at church the day before. When people are talking about some current issue around the water cooler, give an answer from the biblical point of view. When you're on a business trip with your coworkers, take advantage of the opportunity to get to know them on a personal basis. And then he writes this, which I found very encouraging. He said, a Christian who is committed to reaching the workplace for Jesus Christ will find plenty of natural situations in which to speak about supernatural things. Your co-workers may not be very interested in your Christianity. On occasion, they may even ridicule your faith. But when the day of trouble comes, to whom will they go for counsel? When they are confronted with death, to whom will they go for comfort? And when the Holy Spirit awakens them to their spiritual need, to whom will they go for the words of life? They will turn to the man or woman who has loved them with the love of Christ from the very first day they walked into the office. Then you'll be able to share the good news about Jesus Christ. It's true, isn't it? But the world knows. The world is watching. They may scorn. They may despise. They may ridicule. But they know in their hearts the one who has integrity. They know the one who's trustworthy. They know the one who's not frivolous. They know the one who knows someone else they don't know. And when God is pleased to work in their heart, when he brings them in their moment of desperation... It's not the guy who gets drunk every week and they're going to run to for some great wisdom about life. It's you. It's you. So our calling is to adorn the gospel. Our calling is to live in a way that the gospel not be blasphemed by our behavior. And how can we do this when our boss is lousy, when he's unkind, when he's irresponsible, when he blames us for things that are his fault? Well, our comfort, Colossians 3 says, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. That, first of all, your dignity is not built upon your boss or employee. Your dignity is this, that you serve the Lord Christ. And then secondly, which is really firstly, remember this, that your Savior became a servant. Philippians chapter 2, the Son of God came down and made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, a slave, to die in your place. To serve his father and to be a slave to you to bring you salvation. And if the son of God did that, then there's power for you too. To humble yourself through Christ. So that first of all, the highest priority, God's name, 
and God's gospel. But then secondly tonight, notice the loving partnership. Paul moves from talking about serving a master who presumably is unbelieving to verse 2, serving a master who's a Christian. Think of that, a master who's a Christian. There were some who went to church together, weren't there? There were masters who believed and there were slaves who believed. What if your master is a Christian? Sounds nice, but of course there were peculiar temptations with it, right? We read in verse 2, And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. You can imagine ways in which a slave would be tempted to despise his Christian master. He might think to himself, if he's a Christian, I shouldn't have to work so hard. Or if, if he's a Christian, he should cut me a break. Or if he really believes the gospel, why hasn't he set me free? Or if we go to church and we worship next to each other and we're equal before God, why do I have to go home and, and be his slave? And you know, some of that also comes up today, doesn't it, in employee-employer relationships. Maybe we're tempted, if we work for a Christian employer, to, to take certain liberties. Because we know that, that our boss is forgiving. Or because I go to church with him, I shouldn't have to work as hard as the other employees. Or maybe we, we show him contempt. You know, why should he get all the riches and all this wealth off my work? Why shouldn't I be the boss? Or why shouldn't we split things 50-50? Well, God calls us, doesn't he, to recognize his providence. God doesn't distribute his goods to all equally. God doesn't. Some people are born with wealth. Some people are given great gifts for owning and managing businesses. Some of the successful businessmen I know seem to get by on far less sleep than I could. I know that. Are able to carry great amounts of stress and make quick decisions in ways I know I couldn't. The Lord hasn't given the same gifts to all. The Lord distributes according to his will. And it's wrong to have contempt for a Christian employer. Additionally, first century slaves might not have worried, might not have realized, rather, the, the struggle of their Christian master. How are they to know where their Christian master is at? Maybe their Christian master is praying day and night for the Lord to show them how to react now, having heard the gospel and believed the gospel to the situation of owning slaves and how this is to work together. Slave doesn't know what's going on in his master's heart. We don't know what's going on in our employer's heart or mind. But this is the summons. Don't despise your believing master. Let it not be for you a thing that stifles service, but rather stimulates service, he says. Rejoice that you're serving your Christian brother. Serve all the more because it benefits your brother in the Lord. That's the calling. That's the calling. Rejoice in his profit. Pray for his well-being. See yourselves as servants together of the Lord Jesus. Seek the glory of the Lord together. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul gives commands to masters about treating slaves and so forth. But in the economy of God, the good news is that the slave 
and the Master are one. Galatians 3.26, or rather 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One doesn't mean equal. Those who use that verse to dismantle certain roles that God assigns in the church or in the home, saying male and female are one, so they're equal. No, it's not what it says. It says they're one. If the church were all one, it hasn't dismantled all of the relationships God has established. But it does call us to recognize the unity that we have in Christ. And that unity is displayed in a glorious way in the book of Philemon. When Paul, remember, comes into contact with Onesimus, the runaway slave, who apparently has traveled all the way to Rome to get lost in the huge crowd, and somehow comes into contact with the Apostle Paul and comes to know the gospel. And then Paul sends him back to Philemon, but with a letter. And Paul writes to Philemon saying, For perhaps he, Onesimus, departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. See, that's the thing. Onesimus was called to see his master as a Christian brother, and his master is called to see Onesimus as a Christian brother. And so it is that as Paul addresses the slaves here, he says, don't despise your believing master, but love him as your brother. Pray for him to do righteously. Pray that the Lord will bless him. Serve him with all the strength God gives you, rejoicing that it's your brother who's being benefited. And in the same way, we are to love our brother, our Christian employer, praying for his good, for the grace of God upon him as he leads his business and doing our best to serve for his good. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Galatians three twenty-six. But finally tonight, then let's consider the sanctifying process. The last words of verse 2 where Paul says to Timothy, teach and exhort these things. Let me make two points. Number one, number one, God's truth is to be taught. What's to be taught is a content determined by God. The teaching and preaching of God's word is not like an empty vending machine that that we get to decide whatever snacks or beverages to stick in there and dispense, but rather it's like a nurse who's administering an IV or a shot. It's already prescribed by the doctor precisely what's to be administered. Her job is just to administer it. And so when Paul says, teach and exhort these things, he's saying there's a body of truth. There are propositions that are to be taught to God's people. You say, well, that's obvious. Well, it is and it isn't. When a lot of the Bible study that takes place these days is simply to go around the circle and to ask everybody what their opinion is, then you see it 
sort of undermines this. Not that there's not a time for that kind of thing, answering questions together. We certainly get to know the minds of one another and encourage each other. But if it's assumed that everybody's thought in the text, though they be very different thoughts, are all equally valid, then it undermines the reality that there is a truth, that there is a content, that one thing is right, another thing is wrong, and they can't both be right. So that's the first thing. The study of God's word and the teaching of God's word is not strictly a subjective matter. But there are these things. There is a truth from God. There are principles God has given. There are propositions that are to be communicated. But then that's the second thing. The truth that God gives us is to be communicated. Paul says two things, teach and exhort. Teach means to to instruct, to help people get it, to grasp it. The nurse taking up the medication, is to administer it. The teacher and the preacher is to teach God's word. But the other word he uses is the word exhort, which means to to take it to heart. It could be translated appeal to, admonish, urge, encourage. And so Paul's saying don't just teach it as some sterile lecture that everybody by their mind might grasp these truths, but urge it upon God's people to their hearts and to their consciences that they'll commit to doing what God says. That they not be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Now the Apostle Paul might, as he says, teach and exhort these things, be speaking about all that he's just said, or maybe just or especially these two verses we looked at tonight, but in either case, it doesn't really matter. The point is this, that what the Lord calls us to do, and even these things we've been looking at tonight, to honor our employer, not to despise the believing employer, are not things that we just naturally do, but there are ways in which we need to be instructed, and not just to be instructed so we know that's what we ought to do, but there are things in which we need to be exhorted and encouraged. Because God's way of working in our lives is through his word. And that's why we come to church again and again, in part, isn't it? That's why we open the scriptures again and again. That's why we, we keep doing Bible studies. Because we, we need to keep hearing the word and being shaped by the word and being encouraged. And the things that we were doing so well a year ago, maybe we're not doing so well tonight. Maybe for someone tonight, even this text might be something that changes the way you live this week, hopefully so. Or maybe for somebody here tonight who's retired and says, I don't have an employer anymore. Well, maybe this becomes the basis of your encouragement to one of the younger members next week when they're complaining about their boss and you say, yes, but you have an opportunity to show them Christ by how you respond to that. And for all of us, this word of God is a summons to repentance, isn't it? Because for most of us, we've been employed by someone at some time or another, and we've fallen short of what is required here. And we've often justified ourselves. But now as we stand before the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who humbled himself, to become the slave and the servant, to die in our place. 
we see how foolish our pride is. And we realize that though we thought we couldn't do better at the time, we had not perhaps tapped into the resource that was ours. Who is Christ Jesus? The Lord leads us to himself by his word. And he leads us to glorify himself in the whole of our life. Teach and exhort these things. It's the calling to Pastor Timothy. But it's also a reminder to each one of us that we need these things taught and exhorted. And that we also have a calling to each other. To encourage each other. In that daily grind and struggle. Some members don't have it very easy, do they, at work? Their jobs seem boring. Their employer seems harsh. But let us speak a good word to each other every Lord's Day. And say, hold high the honor of Christ and the way you work. Let your master come to know Jesus through you. Let your Christian master have benefit from you. Let him thank God that he has a Christian employee like you. Let us lift high the cause of Christ Jesus our Lord, the one who became our slave, our servant, to lift us up in great dignity and honor forever. Amen. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we thank you for our Savior who has shown to us a way, who has pioneered a way that we may follow after. Open that path, we pray, and give us hearts to follow by your Spirit. We pray tonight, Lord, for those for whom the daily job is greatly difficult, who feel belittled by their task or by their employer or their supervisor, who face a constant challenge. We pray that you'll give them much grace, that they might be able to glorify you and, and to know that in ways beyond what they're able to see, that you may be pleased even to bring their employer to eternal salvation through the way they've behaved in the office, in the workplace. Hear us, O Lord, we pray, and forgive our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen.